you're very kind, and uh, if you want me to come back, ask it or be given. I'll be very glad to come and play with the Italian group again because you have the best restaurants and uh, you have great food and muffins and stuff. So I'm back. I'm in. Bless your heart. Yesterday we had a great marriage is one of the things that um, Helen and I both loved ministering on a great deal. We met each other in high school. We've been married for 50 years. We have four kids and 12 grandchildren. If you'd like to catch up on what we did yesterday, there's a single thing called the Ten Commandments of Marriage. could really save your life. I get to speak to you one time this morning. Uh, that's why one of the reasons we bring resources is because there's a lot. there are things you've got that are gems that you only get to see one or two of them on a trip. This one of my favorite, getting a breakthrough in fasting and prayer. Now I know you say, oh, looking at you, Al, what would you know about fasting and prayer? Well, that's, that's a very rude thing to say, and I deeply resent the fact that you would even say a thing like that. I know a lot about fasting and prayer. Some of my greatest encounters with God have been in fasting and prayer. And, uh, and because I was raised in a church that never mentioned fasting and prayer, uh, I got to the point when I found out about it and I had breakthroughs. I thought, why didn't someone tell me about this stuff? I put together a resource called Getting a Breakthrough. It's not only the theology of fasting and prayer, but then how do you actually do it? And uh, it's, that's a, that can be a, a life changer. Um, the biggest meeting we ever had in our church was the, the night I debated an atheist in church as to whether Christianity was a delusion. He was a, a bit of a Richard Dawkins fan, and for two hours we debated whether Christianity was a delusion. Um, it's called The Great Debate. It's a DVD, a Great Debate. Uh, at the end of it, I had four people stand up and uh, briefly share miracles that they'd had. He didn't have any miracles to share, so it was 4 nil for the Christian. And if you've never heard one of those kinds of debates in church, it was an absolute uh, class classic. We had atheists who came and stayed over the following weeks and gave their lives to Christ some weeks down the track, which was really great. And, and probably my favorite gospel message, Life, Death and Eternity, Many people have never heard Betty Maltz's, maybe, maybe none of you have heard Betty Maltz's testimony of what it was like for her when she died as a result of peritonitis uh, and spent 30 minutes in heaven before God put her back in her body with her father grieving over her and praying for her destiny. Um, life, death and eternity. Anybody who's facing death needs to know the, the, the miracle of what Jesus has done to open heaven for us it's a great resource life death and eternity but that's all there and lots of other stuff stuff on sex stuff on on um, one of the my favorite resources is mastering your money i was a commerce teacher for seven years i have a sub major in accounting uh, an economics and politics degree but i never ran a family budget because no one ever showed me how when i went into full-time ministry the first thing my pastor did is he sat down and made me build a budget he said, how are you going to pay your bills on the miserable amount of money we intend to pay you? And he helped me build my first budget. It changed my life. I, could, I never realized what a potent uh, skill budgeting is. And as a result, I created a resource to help people who've never done that, to build their first budget and then to begin to adapt their budget as they go through the seasons of life because budgets have to change every year. You've got to just keep on reworking them. But today I want to talk to you about the passion of our, of our lives. And that is the church that becomes a great neighbor to its community. Because um, this is what changed our church. Uh, we led a church in 
Mount Evelyn. I'll show you a picture of it in just a minute. If you can put up, here we go. Yep, they've got that. There we go. Whoops, that didn't work. Try again. Did that work? No, it didn't work. Come on. Oh, it's not going to quite work. It seems to me it's too far. Is it too far? Yeah, it is. Stop. Do it again. No, you'll have to press the button. Okay. How are we going to do this? <laughs> yeah, press the button again. Okay. Um, whenever I point to you, press the button. How many of you have ever heard of Arthur Stace? Put your hand up if you've heard of Arthur Stace. A couple of you have. Arthur Stace was a Sydney guy. He was known as Mystery Canada. Fascinating character. Um, grew up in a poverty-struck home. He was a ward of the state by the time he was 12. He was a teenage alcoholic. He was in prison by the time he was 15. He was a pimp for his sister's brothel when he was in his early 20s. When he was 29, he signed up uh, and went off to war, First World War. Came home from the First World War a very sick man. But in the 1930s, someone did him the best favor in their life. They took him to church. And he heard the evangelist John Ridley preaching. He gave his life to Jesus and everything changed for Arthur Stace. Uh, a couple of years later, he heard another preacher uh, preaching a message called Echoes of Eternity. It's preaching out of Isaiah 57. This is the text he heard. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of contrite heart and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. And as he was hearing this message on eternity, he says, I started to say to myself, eternity, eternity. I wish that I could stand and shout that word to everyone on the streets of Sydney. You've got to meet eternity. Where will you spend eternity? And afterwards in an interview, uh, Arthur Stace said, this, this word eternity went ringing through my brain. And suddenly he said, I started crying. And I felt this powerful urge to write the word eternity. He said, I couldn't even write my own name. I couldn't write my name so you could read it. And yet out came this copper plate strip, eternity, just like that. You can go and see an aluminium replica of the way he used to write it. It's uh, just near the waterfall in the town hall square in Sydney. It's embedded in concrete. And for the next uh, 35 years, he would get up early in the morning with a piece of chalk, walk around the streets of Sydney and write the word on the pavement at bus stops, at the entrance to train stations. More than half a million times he wrote the word eternity until everyone in, in Sydney had, had heard. Have you, have you read it? Have you bumped into a, the eternity man? Have you seen it? And he became part of the folklore of Sydney. In fact, when it came to uh, the year 2000, um, they took his word and put it in the fireworks for the turn of the millennium. Arthur Stace. God touched one man's heart for eternity and everybody in Sydney for decades was talking about it. See, that's what happens when someone's life gets touched for eternity. It's an incredible thing what takes place. Um, this is part of our story. 
Jenny, my sweetheart, and she and I for 27 years led that church. Now, the reason I put it up on the board, uh, the picture of the church, is not that the church was a great thing. It was a mud brick auditorium, largest mud brick auditorium in the country. But it was the fact that God allowed us to build a great church, not in a bustling um, metropolis like you're here in Liverpool. We were up in the hills above Melbourne in a little place called Mount Evelyn. You couldn't find it without a GPS. You just wouldn't find it. It was just this tiny little community of a semi-rural community surrounded by lemon farms and fruit trees. That, that was our church. We built a great church there. Why? Because we learned to become a good neighbor. You see, there was a period of time in our church where, uh, in reality, you, uh, if, if we'd been raptured, you wouldn't have known um, that we'd gone because no one knew who we were. We, we, were, we were there in the community, but we never touched our community. If we'd been raptured, no one, no one would have known we were gone. And then God began to show us how to touch our community. And he taught us how to become a great neighbor. And it was Jesus who, by the grace of God, told a parable about becoming a good neighbor. Um, and this is the well-known parable, the parable of the good Jehovah's Witness. You'll know that parable. It's right there in your Bible. And I want to share with you this great parable, the parable of the good Jehovah's Witness. Because this was the key to changing our church. And I want to encourage you. It can be the future of yours. It can be the future of what happens right here at C3 in Liverpool. It all began with a question. Um, Jesus was teaching one day, and the Bible says in Luke chapter 10, on one occasion an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I want eternity. Lord, if I want eternity, what do I have to do to inherit it? Well, what's a dumb question? Jesus could have said to him, what a dumb question. How do I inherit? Well, the only way you can inherit is for someone to write you into their will and then die. What are you asking? Oh, well, it's interesting. It's exactly how you inherit eternal life. Someone wrote us into his will and then died so we could inherit everlasting life. But that, that he was kind of not quite sure what he was asking, except I, I want to inherit eternity. He wasn't even really asking because he wanted to know the answer. He really wanted to know if Jesus knew the answer. He was testing him. And so Jesus, being a great teacher, doesn't always answer questions. Good teachers often just ask for another one. So the Bible says, um, Jesus said to him, um, you're the expert. What's written in the law? I mean, how do you read it? Well, the Bible says, um, he responded by saying, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, brilliant, fantastic, 10 out of 10. That, that's exactly how you inherit eternal life. Go and do it. Do this, and you'll live. Well, that presented him now, of course, with a problem. Um, the moment it came out of his mouth, Jesus invited him to answer his own test question. And the moment he answered his own test question, he knew he was in trouble. He'd never thought about it before. Suddenly, the Holy Spirit helped him to realize there were two sides to that question. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And suddenly Jesus was saying, well, go and do that. The problem was he had a neighbor and his name was Jaime. And he didn't like him very much. And suddenly eternity is hanging on me liking Jaime as much as I like myself. I don't even like Jaime. And suddenly he realized he didn't know what to do with that information. The Bible says he wanted to justify himself. Fascinating idea, justifying yourself. If you, if you type a Word document, you get to the end of it, and you want to make it look fantastic, you can do what they call, you justify the document. You select the whole doc- document, you hit the icon, and all the words pop out to the perfectly. It looks fantastic. And you don't have to type one more word. It's fantastic. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to look like he was inheriting eternal life without doing one more thing. And so he realized the big problem was, if I have to love Jaime as much as I love myself, in order to be part of those, that group that's going to embrace eternity, um, I'm in a lot of trouble. And being a lawyer, he realized that probably the best thing to do would be to confuse the issue. So if I don't know who my neighbor is, if I, uh, Jesus said um, in his definition of eternity, love God, love your neighbor, but I don't know who he is. Who is this neighbor I'm supposed to love? And so that was his best attempt at trying to escape the challenge of the Word of God in his life. So, <laughs> well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus said, well, that's a brilliant question. Let me answer that for you. Let me tell you a story. Jesus said there was a, a man going down from, give it one more, just hold it there for one sec. There was... A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away leaving him half dead. I don't know how often you've heard this story, but I'm sure I've heard this story lots of times. But I'd never seen it. Uh, A few years ago, I got a chance to go to Israel. Hit it one more time. And this is what that road looks like. This is us starting on down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, let me tell you this. If ever you've got a heart to rob someone, this is a really good spot. I would, I would recommend it. Lots of places to hide. They can't get away from you, as you'll see in a moment, as on that road. This is the shortest route between Jerusalem and Jericho. Well, Jesus said there's a guy going down that road, and the robbers are hiding up the little clefts everywhere. They see him coming. They jump out. They bite out of the poor guy. They strip him and leave him lying on the ground. Take all his stuff and they're gone. But wait, help is on the way. Jesus said a priest happened to be going down the same road. Oh, when he he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Well, that's a strange thing. Why would a priest do a thing like that? Well, maybe it's because the, the, the guy was the priest, lived in Jericho, and his time to be a priest, you had to wait till you're, you know, you're, you're on the roster. You've got a chance to, to do ministry. And now he's, gonna, he's going up to Jerusalem to do ministry. And as he's coming along the road, he finds a dude nearly, nearly dead on the side of the road. And he says to himself, you know, this is help. If I stop and he dies, 
while I'm looking after him. I will be unclean for seven days. I'll go all the way up to Jerusalem. I'll be unclean. I won't be allowed to be a priest and God will miss out on my brilliant ministry. But that's not what was going on. That's not what the story's about because Jesus didn't say he was going up the road. Jesus said he was going down the road. You say, that's very pedantic. No, no. Whenever you left Jerusalem, they talked about you going down from Jerusalem. Whenever you went to Jerusalem, you were going up to Jerusalem. Jesus said the guy was going down the road and the priest was going down the same road. He's coming from church. He's been in church telling everybody about the love of God and the glory of the Lord and the wonders of eternity. But he bumps into a dude half dead on the side of the road and suddenly he's faced with a question. Well, what am I going to do? I mean, if I stop, it's going to take time. I'm going to need to care for him. It's it's not going to be easy. And after all, it's not my ministry. I mean, I'm not like I'm not an ambulance officer. I'm a priest. I do needs more than a Bible study. Oh, I mean, it's not really. I don't. In fact, I mean, he is lying there naked, so I can tell he's Jewish. I mean, he's been circumcised. Um, but I don't know. He may not even come to our congregation. He may not be my responsibility. And after all, the football's on in 30 minutes, and my wife's got a shepherd's pie in the oven. And if I and so the whatever was going on, he kind of just felt it's not not my response, and he passes by on the other side. Extraordinary. For wait, help is on the way. Jesus said, and so too a Levite when he came to the place. And saw him. He passed by on the other side. Well, a Levite's not like as responsible as a priest. I mean, he he doesn't teach the Bible. It's and he's only like a deacon. He puts out the chairs. He brings in the firewood. Uh, he takes out the dead bodies from the sacrifices. He just helps church to happen. But he's come when he sees a guy half dead on the side of the road, he goes, oh, well, it's not my ministry. I don't do half dead people. I do ashes and I do wood and I do dead. I'd like to do dead cows, but I do dead people. And after all, football's on in 30 minutes and my wife's got a pie in the oven. And if I stay here, it'll take me time and I'll be, it'll be a, a pain in the neck. So he just said, I'm not having it in the heart. He just walks past on the other side. Jesus said, surprise, surprise. Down the road comes a Jehovah's Witness. Well, Jesus didn't say Jehovah's Witness. Yeah, well, he kind of he did. Jesus said, but a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was. Now, Jesus inserts this character into his story. And you've got to know there's tension in the air because... Jewish lawyers hated Samaritans. Why? Well, because Samaritans weren't true blue Jews. They were half Jew, half Gentile. They were the, they were the product of the, of the Assyrians coming storming down from the north, capturing the ten northern tribes, splitting them all up, bringing in, mixing up foreigners with Jewish people, with Israelites, and creating an entire hybrid race 
And, and not only were they not true blue Jews, they didn't even really have a good Bible to work with. Uh, at some point, the Assyrians allowed them to bring a priest back, but he only had the first five books of the Bible. He didn't have a whole Bible. didn't have the Psalms, didn't have all, all the other books, the, the prophets. And they've got this Samaritan religion up there. It's a wonky Bible and a wonky religion. And even Jesus would one day say to a Samaritan woman, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know for salvation is of the Jews. I mean, Jesus was willing to say, you've got a wonky Bible and you've got a wonky religion. But blow me down if a dude with a wonky Bible and a wonky religion couldn't figure out that when you meet someone half dead on the side of the road, humanity calls for a different response. And even though they thought, the, 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 the bit like, you know, you, I've had Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door and I've had long conversations with Jehovah's Witnesses. They do have a wonky Bible. They've got their own translation and it's wonky. And they've got wonky theology. But many of them are just normal people that just need help like everybody else needs help. And here was a Samaritan with wonky religion and a wonky ethnic background, but something in his heart was closer to God than the lawyer he was talking to. Because in Jesus' story, the Samaritan, the Bible says, press that one more time. The Bible says the Samaritan came where he was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And one of the reasons that the ministry of Jesus has had such a profound impact on Western civilizations like Australia is that the ministry of Jesus hasn't only been shared through preaching, like what I'm doing now, it's been shared through great artwork. Because artists, ever since the Bible has been written, ever since Jesus rose from the dead, people have been not only telling stories, but painting the pictures. And people have stood and looked at those pictures and been touched by the Spirit of God. This was drawn by Vincent van Gogh. And Vincent knew the story. Press it one more time. That red arrow at the top is the priest disappearing over the horizon. Press it one more time. And here in the foreground is the Levite doing exactly the same thing. But here is a Samaritan who really needs some Bible study, realizes that someone should care about this, and here he is wrestling to lift this man onto his own donkey. Funny thing is, I've been going home from church most of my life. Um, I live in Australia, and as a result, I have never one time in my life on my way home from church uh, found guy half dead, beat up by robbers on the side of the road. It's never happened once. The closest I ever got to it was one night, I found a guy, one Friday night, I found a guy half naked tied to a lamppost. But it turned out that it was his bucks night and it was his and it was his friends who did it to him. So I don't think I qualify yet as a good Samaritan. But at least that's as close as I've got. The big problem that I faced was that middle class desperation has such a different face on it. You and I live in a largely middle class country. And as a result, you don't tend to see lots of lepers. You don't tend to see um, lots of poverty-struck people begging. And you just don't tend to bump into people beat up by robbers lying on the side of the road. You don't seem to see that. See, the desperation 
in middle-class countries is behind closed doors. It's what happens in bedrooms and it's what happens in kitchens and lounges. It's what happens in the strife behind closed doors. And for that reason, see, I was going to church and going home and I never realized that I was driving home past half-dead people every single week. I just never saw them. And then God helped to me to open, he opened my eyes. Because here's the reality. We are surrounded by pain. If you were to leave church today and want to go and do a little survey, you could walk down any street that's got houses in it and you can pick your own. It wouldn't matter. Ten doors. By the time you've knocked on ten doors and you hear the stories of what's happening in that house, you'll find everything on that list in down street you want to go. You'll find chemical dependency, sexual abuse. That's what first opened the door for us in our church. I had a woman on staff. Um, her name was Rona. And she told me one day that in a communion service on a Sunday morning, she said, God broke my heart for women who were survivors of sexual abuse. She wasn't a sexual abuse survivor. She'd never been sexually abused. But she was, as she was my secretary. She was hearing women's stories. And she said, God broke my heart for um, female survivors of sexual abuse. She signed up for a local Bible college, Melbourne uh, Bible College, and she got some skills and began to develop a little counselling course to help women like that. When we launched this in our church, we could identify 72 female survivors sitting in our church every Sunday, soldiering on being very brave, trying to be good wives or mothers or just good citizens, but having been survivors of sexual abuse and having been damaged by that, and no one had ever done a thing for her. And as she began to run her little counselling course, they began to tell their friends because they started to discover that Jesus is really in his church and he's the greatest healer the world's ever known. And the moment you begin to move responsibly down a pathway of healing, he shows up. They began to encounter his love and his healing. Then they began to tell their friends, and their friends started turning up in church looking for help. Because there's only really two ways you get help, and that is um, somebody does it for free, or you pay $160 an hour to sit in the council's chair each week. And lots of people who are survivors just couldn't afford $160 a week for a year to sit in someone's office and work their way through the pain of sexual abuse. And as a result, my eyes were opened. You see, if you'd come to me and said, Al, what do we do for survivors of sexual abuse in our church? I would have said, well, it's not my ministry. I mean, after no woman's ever come to me and said, I've been a I'm a survivor of sexual abuse. And even if she did, I wouldn't know what to say. And, and it's, it's not been my background. I, I'm not trained in it. We'd have to send them off somewhere. But when one faithful little woman in our church began to seek to help them, Jesus began to show up, and my eyes were opened. And that trickle, this is the sad thing, 
that little trickle from the community ended up forming a queue outside her office door that stretched over the horizon. But we were not a healing community. I had one faithful woman trying to help other women. And as a result, we were not a team and she burned out and she went off leadership and never functioned in leadership again. But God got my attention. Alan, your church is supposed to be a good neighbor to its community and some of them are half dead, beat up by life. And if you would minister to them, they would, they would just think you were the best thing in the world. We've now developed a course called Door of Hope. It's being used all over the country. It's being used in other countries. It's the only course we know of that empowers a local church to do effective ministry to female survivors of sexual abuse. And that's where it all began. Sexual addiction. Some of you guys have done the Valiant Man course. Marriage breakdown. When I first moved into our community, I built a house. Right behind me, there was a guy building his house. He had emigrated from London. And I thought to myself, as soon as I built my house, I'll invite him over and I'll share my faith with him and I'll see if I can win him for Jesus. So I did. As soon as we finished our house, we invited him and his wife over for dinner. I shared with them radiant faith in Jesus. He thought I was an absolute idiot. Oh, good Lord. Goes over the back. Lord, help me, help me. I couldn't share my faith with him. He wasn't interested. But I came home from a wedding one Saturday afternoon, and as I pulled up in my driveway, another car pulled up right behind me in my driveway, and my next-door neighbor got out of his car with tears running down his face. He said to me, Alan, my marriage is failing. Do you think you could help me? It's amazing what pain will do in a person's life to get their attention. He would tell me later on that when, <laughs> a week before he came to my, down my driveway, he had stood on the drafting desk in his house, just 50 yards from where I sleep. He had put a noose around his neck, thrown it over a beam and tried to hang himself in his own house out of desperation. He said, the day that you passed me, he said, I, I got into my car and my intention was to drive out down the highway and smash my car into a tree and end it all. And as I got to my driveway, your car went past and I just had a thought, maybe Al could help. And he followed me around the corner and down my driveway. The next day he came to church with us. Helen was sharing life to Jesus. And over the next year, I did the best I could to save his marriage. Couldn't save it. It was beyond saving. I just helped him have a really healthy divorce, which meant that instead of it becoming an early retirement plan for the local lawyers, getting rich off his divorce, he had an amicable divorce with his wife, who now still, now that she's gone off married again and come back to him, still sees him as a, a reliable and trusted friend because of the way I taught him to handle that divorce. Today, he leads the intercessory prayer ministry at the church I left behind. See, I couldn't get to him with my great testimony. I had to wait until there was pain in his life. But when his marriage pain emerged, his heart was ready for Jesus. There was a church around the corner that knew how to restore broken people. Marriage breakdown. <laughs> I was sitting in my office one day, and my secretary came in and said, Alan, um, the producer of Four Corners is here. He wants to talk to you. And I thought, oh, brilliant. Just what I need is expose on Channel 2. So bring him in my office, sit him down. Okay, he said, we want to film in your church. Why? 
He said, we've been making a program on survivors of sexual abuse, people that have been uh, damaged by sexual abuse in the Catholic system. And for, for two years, we've been following 14 individuals and all of their lives have degenerated. And suddenly, one of them starts to improve. And we ask him why. He says he's getting help at a church. And we want to know what kind of a church is it that can help someone who was abused in a church. And I said, well, I don't know who you're talking about. So my staff had to go tell me the story. And here's the story. We do marriage enrichment. It was one of the things we did relentlessly. I had one of my staff members on the Police Consultative Commission. And every um, time the police visited uh, an issue of family violence, they would refer that couple to us. And in all the years that he was doing that follow-up, only one couple refused help. People don't get married planning to have a dysfunctional family. They just manage to do it without any effort at all. But if they could find a place where someone will help them, it's amazing what a difference that will make. Well, I said, well, what's the story? Well, it came back to me. One couple in our church had gone through the marriage course and one thing gripped their, their, their attention was what we call the stairwell of communication. He's having a conversation with his next-door neighbour. He's telling him about the stairwell of communication. And the neighbour's saying, well, that's brilliant stuff. Where do you learn that kind of thing? Oh, we've got a church. We do that. Well, he says, can anybody get into this course? Yeah, come on, I'll get you in. So they signed him up. They went through with him again. And on the final night, he says to the facilitators, how do you give your life to Jesus? Gave his life to Christ. Now he's in my uh, with his wife and his three little kids. I'd never met the guy because he wasn't there because of me. He was there because I had a neighbor who just told him there's a place you can get help. Changed his life. Marriage enrichment. Break, marriage breakdown. Divorce. The woman who became the financial manager of our ministry for a number of years came into our church after a horrendous divorce where she'd had to leave her son behind. And she had not heard or seen from that kid in 10 years. She had every birthday present, every card. She had no, no connection whatsoever. She had to get withdraw because of the violence of her husband and the recognition that if she didn't pull back, both of them, her, both her and her son, may be dead. And so she had to step back. She came to a church where you could actually say that I've had to leave my son. I haven't heard from or seen my son in a decade. On the seventh night, of doing one of our courses called The Search for Life. She heard about forgiveness and she said to the group, I'm so sick of the hurt and I'm so sick of the hate. And the next day that facilitator rang her and for 45 minutes led her down a pathway of forgiving a violent husband for, for the damage he had inflicted on her life. She became uh, our business manager, brilliant woman. You see, in every street around this place, there's parenting problems. Family dysfunction, grief, eating disorders, shame, guilt, self-hatred, codependency, insecurity, depression. I could go on and on. There is pain everywhere in Australian communities. And that's what opens the door. And here's what the Bible says. When the Samaritan saw him. See, I just didn't see it. For, de for a decade, I never saw I led a church for 10 years and I never saw that I was surrounded by wounded people. When we saw it, we just made a decision. We were going to minister to every area of brokenness in our community that God would give us the skill to do. We ended up creating 15 different avenues for ministry into our community. The Bible says, when he saw him, this is the artwork of 
Ferdinand Hodler. Ferdinand Hodler demonstrates in this painting that when you're going to care for your neighbour, you can't do it over the internet. You can't do it by just dropping tracts in their letterbox. It's, it means sitting in the same room and being close enough to hear them cry, to smell their fear, to smell their hurt. Uh, you can't do it from far away. When he, when he saw him, the Bible says, he took pity on him. Then we go to the artwork of Johann Lote, the German artist. The, Jesus went on to say, he went to him and bandaged his wounds pouring on oil and wine. Bandaged his wounds. I was raised in the Lutheran church and every now and then we'd get a sermon in the, in the 60s and I remember the 60s because I didn't smoke margarine. Um, not everyone remembers the 60s, but I do. <laughs> All I was doing golf, cricket and football. We'd hear a sermon every now and then on church on what was called the social gospel that was helping people. And we were reminded that that's not the real gospel. The real gospel is about Jesus on the cross and sins forgiven and the death of Jesus and the resurrection and so on. And I understand that. And we were told from time to time the social gospel is just a band-aid solution. Well, Jesus thought a band-aid was a pretty good idea at the right time. A band-aid can be just the thing. Yeah, sure, it's not the real gospel, but boy, oh boy, I want to tell you what, it can be the doorway to the real gospel. This guy uh, realized that um, what this guy needs is not a Bible study on justification. He needs a Band-Aid. He needs some oil and he needs some wine, and that's exactly what he gave him. Pouring on oil and wine. Then going back to Vincent van Gogh, then he put the man on his own donkey took him to an inn and took care of him. Jesus believes in referrals. See, one of the things you've got to realize in church is that there's a limit to what we can do. You are your C3's Liverpool. So all you can do is what you can do. But what one of the things you can do is you can develop a network of connections, and, and um, Team Challenge is one of them. My brother runs Team Challenge in uh, Victoria. And the average church is just not set up to be a place to bring addicts and kind of heal them. You haven't got the skills, but you can get them there. You can refer them. We developed some fantastic referrals. One of the most helpful referrals we had was a little Jewish gynecologist who just was so helpful to women in the area of hormone replacement therapy. And uh, sometimes our significant challenges are medical problems. And if you can get to the right guy who knows what to help, how to help you, you can change people's lives and support them in, in ways that just the church can't. But you refer them. And Jesus said, the dude realizes, I'm a businessman with a donkey on the road. I'm not team challenge, but I'll get the guy to an inn and I'll help him get the help that he needs. Um, a healthy church develops referrals like a network of help. And sometimes you'll find that totally non-Christian people are, are really turned on by helping people. And you begin to form alliances you wouldn't have expected were possible. Then Rembrandt gets into the act. Give it, get the next one. He next day he took out two silver coins. It's expensive to help people, but usually the expense is not so much money. Usually the expense is emotional. 
I will never forget sitting in what we used to call our debriefing. At the end of the nights, when, when all the leaders were coming back after the small group ministry had happened, we would debrief to make sure that we prayed for each other and heard each other's stories and coached each other. The Door of Hope ladies would start. They might have 20 new women starting the journey of healing from sexual abuse. The first night, the women tell their story. And the girls would always come back and their eyes would be red from crying because they would hear, they'd hear stories that would break your heart. And back they'd come crying, just wiping tears from their eyes and the, and the, the weight of having heard the suffering of other people. Often that's the biggest challenge of faith. Are you willing to invest your emotions? Are you willing to invest your time? And there's a weight that goes with this. Helen and I still run this ministry at our home church, at Stairway Church, which used to be C3 Whitehall. You feel the weight of it because people are going to come and sit in your group and you know that you're there just to help them make a journey. I love this thought that um, he put him on the, his donkey and took him to an inn. Now, in this picture, the donkey's turned into a horse. But see, that's what we got really good at creating. We got good at creating donkeys. I don't want to, you know, sometimes people get offended when I say this. Small group leaders don't have to be counselors. Small group leaders don't have to be teachers. They just have to be donkeys. A donkey is an amazing creature. You know, in the entire Bible, there is only one speech recorded from a donkey. All the donkeys that got into the Bible in different ways and places, and yet only one speech from a donkey. And then all he gets to say is, what are you hitting me for? <laughs> Which is not really a profound insight that, that will bring healing to lots of people. But donkeys are wonderful creatures because they help people make a journey they couldn't make by themselves. They help them make a journey. And that's what we got good at. We, we got good at training donkeys, people who could run a small group and help people do a journey with the resources that we created. And they would just faithfully ring them up and lead the group well and keep the people safe and keep them moving. And six months down the track, they'd be in a totally different place just because they had a good donkey. And this, this room uh, has a dozen or two donkeys that could be brilliant supporter. You Maybe you would never see yourself as a teacher. You don't have to teach. You maybe would never see yourself as a counsellor. You don't have to counsel. You just have to keep a group of people safe and know how to keep them working and know how to make sure this group doesn't stop and stall. Someone who loves people enough to just carry the, the weight with them. The Bible says, the next day he took out two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper. He said, look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. I'm going to show you one more picture. Um, I hate this picture because this is a picture about me. See, I'm the dude in white. For 10 years... I led a church with the cross and the word and the teaching ministry, the best I've got to give. And right behind me, my faithful Levites, my faithful worship ministry. We, for 10 years, walked past half-dead people every week and never saw that there was a way we could reach them and a way we could help them. Just never saw it. Now we come to the application of these words. 
Which of these three, Jesus said, do you think was a neighbor? Who is my neighbor? A neighbor is anyone whose need I see, whose need I could meet. I can't meet everybody's need. I can't change everybody and I can't change everything. But my neighbor is anyone whose need I see, whose need I am able to meet. And as a result, he says, who do you think it was? Well, the expert in the law replied, he couldn't even bring himself to say a Samaritan. He said, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, you really are brilliant. You really do understand this. He said, now go and live that life. Don't spend your life theorizing about heaven. Live the life of heaven. That's what eternity is all about. The New Testament is just a touch stronger than the Old. Here's the Old Testament. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then Jesus came and said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as... Let, let, my, um, let my love for you kind of draw more from you. Because this is... Uh, the kind of love we've received. Not counting our sins against us, he has raised us from the dead and translated us into the kingdom of his own son. Love this statement from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world and when churches begin to minister in those areas, we touch people we've never touched before. Now, how do you go about making a church like this? Well, you use your leadership in the right way. Listen to what uh, uh, Paul had to say in Ephesians 12. Jesus, Paul said, this is how Jesus makes a great church. He gave some to be apostles and some to be prophets, some to be evangelists and some to be pastors and teachers. How do you build a great church? Get your pastor to stop taking holidays. Get him to stop going to sleep at night. He's got to work longer hours. He's got to flog himself. He's got to do more. No, that's not how it works. You use your leaders to coach you and equip you into an effective way of being a minister yourself. That's the best use of leadership. To prepare God's people for works of service. Helen and I are teachers by background. Curriculum development is our skill. And as we just labor to try to put tools in the hands of ordinary people to do extraordinary things for Jesus. Don't expect your leaders to somehow make the church work. It's their job to help you get into an appropriate ministry that works for the way you want so that the body of Christ may be built up. And how can you delegate ministry like this? I mean, how do you actually do that? Well, it all starts with this. It starts with training. I've given your pastor a gift today, uh, yesterday. I gave him the training course that we created for our own donkeys. And one day he will come to you as a church and say, we're going to run the training course. You'll either put your hand up or you won't. His job is not to be trying to win all the community. His job is to help you be effective at taking these kinds of materials and others and doing effective ministry because that's what makes a church grow. When you touch broken people and help them, 
That's what makes a church grow. It's that church doesn't grow because you've got multiple projectors. It doesn't grow because you've got a bigger band or a better building. It grows because broken people are being helped. If you help them, it changes everything. So first of all, it's training. Then secondly, I've got to put tools in your hands. And that we've created, we created 15 tools. Now, people like Alpha have created tools. People like Focus on Family have created tools. But once you're trained to run a small group well, any tool could be put in your hand and you could be doing good ministry. Then you have to provide those people with structure and support. And last of all, just believe that Jesus is here. Because if this is really the body of Christ, he'll show up. You can't heal people, but he can. One more thing to tell you. I'm talking to you about doing good works. Good works are wonderful. One of the things that happens with good works is that it creates goodwill. Helen and I were away trying to learn more uh, in the USA. We went, we've been to a number of conferences trying to pick up insights on how do you effectively minister to people. We were on that trip and she said to me, Al, we've got to create a course for children. My wife was a remedial teacher. She was trained as a primary teacher and she just loved healing wounded kids. She used to just gather them together and, and because she lost her mum when she was eight. She was going to school with a broken heart and she knows what that means to a kid. And as a result, my wife, um, don't do the eight, go back up one. And that's all right, you're doing okay. just go as far as good news creates goodwill and hold in there good grace we got to create a course for kids and out of that came a course we gathered a group of people together and we created a course called kids with courage it's being used at primary schools all over this country we were running it in five local primary schools cardinia church of christ in geelong runs it in seven local primary schools what's the deal with kids with courage well we gather together the kids that are not making friends we gather together the kids that aren't learning well, they're problematic in class, and we begin to realize there's something going on in this kid's life. If you help them now, you change everything. You don't want them to be the next crop of delinquents. It doesn't matter how dysfunctional a family is, they love their kids. And now you've got a 10-year-old kid who's coming from a wildly dysfunctional family who's going home saying, no, we don't talk like that. No, that, that's not helpful. We say it this way. And he starts to reparent his own parents. The amazing thing about goodwill is that it opens people's hearts to good news. Good news. One Sunday morning, you see a big, crusty plumber turn up with his little wife and little 10-year-old kids leading family to church. Because... You, I want you to come and meet Peter. He's the one who did my Kids With Courage class and suddenly an entire family who is so grateful that you helped their 10-year-old kid of, of walking into church for the first time. That's what changed our church. It opens people's hearts to good news. Here's the bottom line. Show them the last picture. Jesus said, I want you to take my yoke upon you and I want you to learn of me. It's not that hard. We're not talking about building rocket ships and trying to get to Mars. We're talking about learning how to use tools to do effective ministry to struggling people. And the beautiful thing is the moment you begin to seriously tackle this, God will bring them to you. You'll be on a bus somewhere and the next thing you know, the person beside you starts spilling it out. They've been divorced. 
and you were just sitting there looking yesterday at oh a divorce recovery program and we'd, we'd, i could take you through that next thing you know you're sitting in someone's lounge room helping them get over something that's broken their heart and they'll love you forever next thing they're sitting in church thanking jesus for what happened because they brought he brought you into their life it's what changed our church and today i simply want to say to you this is mission possible listen this is not impossible you're surrounded by broken people there's pain down every street if you are prepared to follow your leading if you're prepared to present yourself and say well teach me how to do this you'll find your place and uh, uh, you see christianity is a terrible spectator sport it's one of the worst spectator sports in the world boring as all get out but there is nothing more thrilling than being a hand that changes a human life and forever you know that person says, you, you changed my life. Christianity is only exciting when you're doing ministry. But ministry does not happen up here. It happens everywhere. Father, I pray for my friends today. I pray for this church and I pray for everyone in it. I pray for a heart of willingness because the day is going to come when the leaders are going to say, we're going to run the training. This is my prayer, that the most unlikely people will prove to be brilliant Small group leaders, one-on-ones, one-on-fives, one-on-tens. They'll take a tool in their hand and bring Jesus to broken people. I pray for this church. I pray for the day to quickly come when this room will not be enough and the grace of God will spill out and be touched by good neighbors. I commit them into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. I'm not going to have an altar call because the altar call really will come later. The altar call will come when you're invited to do the course. So I don't want you running up the front and getting praying for you and you saying, oh, I went up the front. No, I don't really want you up the front. <laughs>